When I was in university, I would make money by working during the summers as a camp counselor for kids entering grades one and two. Now, I learned very quickly in this line of work the importance of storytelling. And one of the lines of stories I would tell with the kids were my Agent 2461 stories, which were a kind of solve-the-crime mystery. I would describe a little crime scene that Agent 2461 would come upon. He, then, after seeing the crime scene, the detective would go and interview various suspects. And then, after interviewing the various suspects, I'd ask the kids to try and figure out which one of the suspects was the guilty party. And then the detective, Agent 2461, would solve the case, explaining why the certain, a, certain sus, a certain suspect was the guilty party. Now, the key in this kind of storytelling was to lay out a key clue early on when I described the crime scene that would later be linked to one of the suspects. So in one of the stories that I would tell, there were footprints, but alongside the footprints was a little round mark. Later on, as he's viewing, interviewing the suspects, only one of them has a cane, the only thing that could have made that mark. And so when by dropping that crucial clue early on, the whole story makes sense and my Agent 2461 stories work. It's not all that complex, but it kept the kids' attention. I tried it on my kids yesterday in the car ride to Guelph for Guelph Market, and it kept their attention too. In the Bible, God does something similar for us. He wants us to know to know that Jesus really is the one sent to redeem our broken world and our crooked hearts. He wants us to know that beyond a shadow of a doubt. So he lays out a series of clues, some quite obvious, some a bit more subtle. But along the way, he, as he's telling a story of redemption in the Bible, he lays out these clues that all point the way to Jesus. And one of the most obvious and deliberate clues comes in Genesis 14. So I'd like you to turn there. You can keep your finger in Hebrews 7 because we'll be back there in a moment. But turn to Genesis uh, 14, which is on page 10 if you're using the Pew Bible. Page 10. Now just so you know what's going on, there's the great father Abraham, the father of Israel, Abraham... And his nephew Lot, who he's very close with, has just been captured. There's a war between nine different kings, and the four kings, who are the ones in power, win the battle, and they capture Lot in his town, and Lot is carried off by these four kings and their armies. Abraham hears what happens, and he sends his own little band to go and try and rescue Lot, and lo and behold, his little army is able to defeat the armies of all four of these kings. That's the story we're in the middle of. And so as Abraham's coming back, you're thinking, man, that was an incredible victory. You're thinking of how great Abraham and his army is. And then right in the middle of it, we hear these words in chapter 14, picking up at verse 18. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. 
And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And that's it. After that, Melchizedek comes in at verse 18. He leaves at verse 20. And that's it. That's all we learn of Melchizedek. Now, as you're reading along in the book of Genesis, some of you are doing one-year Bible reading, so you start in Genesis. As you're reading along, this is one of those passages that makes you scratch your head. You're going, what in the world is going on here? This seems like a random insert into the text that doesn't make a lot of sense. So you've got just three verses. But in these three verses, there are three unusual details. So let me just point out these unusual details. Unusual detail number one. The titles ascribed to Melchizedek. First of all, he's called Melchizedek, which translated means king of righteousness. Melech, king, Zedek, righteousness. Then we're told he's king of Salem, which could be Jerusalem, but Salem sounds like the word for peace, so it means king of peace. He's king of Salem, king of peace. Well, that's enough right there to kind of raise our eyebrows. What's going on with this man who just randomly shows up, but he's the king of righteousness, king of peace. But you can maybe co- explain that coincidence away. You know, it's not surprise. Maybe that's just the town he's over. Maybe, you know, because he's the king, he wants to be a righteous king, so that's what he goes by, something like that. But we're told another detail. He's called, we see it in parentheses in verse 18, priest of God most high. King and priest are two different lines of work. One leads the civil affairs. The other leads the religious affairs. But this man was both king and priest. And if that weren't unusual enough, he was the priest of the Most High God, of God Most High, El Elyon. Now, in in a polytheistic world, He claims to be the priest of God Most High. A title elsewhere linked to Yahweh, the one true God. Melchizedek even says that he serves the God who is over both heaven and earth. You see that at the end of 19. Possessor of heaven and earth. So the first unusual thing is the combination of his titles. King of Righteousness. King of peace, priest of the Most High God. That's all unusual detail number one. Unusual detail number two is the flow of blessings and tithes. Notice that it is Melchizedek who gives the blessing and Abraham who pays the tithe. This is important because usually, usually, blessings slow down and tithes flow up. Let me explain what I mean. Typically, and especially in Genesis, the one giving the blessing is a someone who outranks the other. So God blesses his creation. Fathers give a blessing to their children. And Melchizedek blesses Abraham. A great Abraham, great Abraham who just won this great victory should be the one giving the blessing. But here he is receiving them. It flows down from Melchizedek to him. And similarly, it's typical that a tithe would be paid to someone who is in a sense over you. You give it to someone to show honor, respect, 
or gratitude or because they're in some position of authority over you where you must. So tithes typically flow upward. And here the tithe flows from Abraham to Melchizedek. Now all that is weird because it's Melchizedek's just here in three verses. Abraham's the one who just won the great victory over those four kings. Abraham's the one who's kind of the story of Genesis, the, the, the story that unfolds in the book of Genesis in many ways is built around him and the promise God makes to him. He's the big deal, and yet this guy who's only here for three verses is the one who's giving the blessings and who's receiving the tithe. We'd expect the foreign king and priest to seek Abraham's blessing. But instead, he receives. He's the one who gives the blessing. And Abraham gives him one-tenth of all his spoils. So, even though he's only mentioned in three verses, we can tell Melchizedek's a pretty big deal. We see it from the flow of blessings and tithes, which is Unusual detail number two. The third unusual detail in these three verses is the way Melchizedek just floats on and then off the pages of Scripture. If you're reading in the book of Genesis, you know that Genesis is a book of genealogies. Maybe sometimes that frustrates you as you read. Oh, another long list of names. It's a message for another time how we learn from that. But everyone has a birth. Everyone has an ancestry. Everyone has a death that's reported. Well, not everyone, but everyone who's significant, everyone who's a big deal in Genesis has that. And we've already seen that Melchizedek's a big deal. His titles indicate that. The flowing blessings and tithes indicate that. So for someone who's such a big deal, it's really odd that we know so little about him. We don't know who his parents were. We don't know how long he lived. We don't hear about his death. He just appears on the scene and then disappears. As you read the book of Genesis, for someone so significant, that's unusual. Three verses, three unusual details. So what is this doing? Why does God do this? Why at the very beginning of his revelation, you know, Genesis is the first book revealed to God's people. Genesis 1, then Genesis 14, just 14 chapters in, this random occurrence. What is going on? Well, what he's doing is he's giving us a crucial clue early on in the story. It's just like my cane print alongside my footprints. It's an obvious clue. It's interesting to look at the various Jewish commentators, ancient and modern, to see what they do with Melchizedek. Because they too realize this is unique. So some have him as some sort of heavenly being who rescues the people from evil forces. Others suggest there's divine origins. Still others say that he is a human pupil of the angel Michael. Another saw him as a divinely, divinely appointed to establish early on the importance of Jerusalem's priests and kings. The point is that they all know this is a clue. They just aren't sure what to do with the clue. Because the clue just sits there, hanging out there. 
It comes, boom, and then nothing's done with it. Have you ever watched a movie where there's some crucial plot element that emerges early in the movie, and then it's left unresolved until the end, and there's another kind of more major plot that takes place, and you're kind of following that, but in the back of your head, you're going, what's going on with this? What's going on with this? I need that to be resolved. That's what's going on here. It's not resolved until the end. And you're wondering, how does this Melchizedek clue fit into God's redemptive plan? And what's, I just love how God wants to communicate to us. It's not just this kind of drab, this is what you need to know, boom, boom. He leads us with this clue. And then just one other verse in the whole Old Testament mentions Melchizedek. It doesn't come until it's that, that clue came from the writings of Moses. Then several hundred years later, King David comes along. And in Psalm 110, he mentions Melchizedek one other time. There, we're told, David says, one of my descendants, who I call Lord, incidentally, one of my descendants will also be a priest. Whoa, whoa, whoa. The kings come from the line of Judah. The priests come from the line of Levi. How can that work? Well, he'll be a priest after the order of Melchizedek, we're told. In other words, God in Genesis 14 was establishing a priestly order or pattern that David's kingly son would follow. Now that is an exciting clue. And that's exactly what the author of Hebrews wants us to see. He gave us the clue. God gave us the clue back in Genesis 14 at the beginning of the story, like I do with my mystery stories. But now in Hebrews 7, we see it all come together. So look with me back at Hebrews 7. If you haven't, uh, it didn't have your finger there, it's on page 1004. Now, if you've been with us as we've been moving through the book of Hebrews, you know that the author's kind of been teasing us with Melchizedek already. So he mentioned Melchizedek in chapter 5, verse 6, when he quotes Psalm 110, which we looked at, or that Psalm of David. Then it's mentioned again in 5.10. You can tell he's eager to tell us about why Melchizedek is such a big deal. He's eager to show us this crucial clue that God laid out. But remember, he knew his audience didn't have a stomach for it. This kind of rigorous, intense study of the Old Testament scriptures. He knew they'd hear Melchizedek and their eyes would roll back in their heads and they'd go, can't you just tell us about Jesus? He knew that they didn't have a stomach for meat. That they just wanted milk. So before proceeding, he interrupts himself to emphasize to them the importance of listening diligently to all of God's word, of feasting on meat instead of milk, not so that we can move past the gospel, but so that the gospel of Jesus can actually take root in our hearts. And now at last, after that interruption and that rebuke, he finally resumes his study of Melchizedek. Now we finally get to enjoy the meat that he's been promising us. So that's chapter 7, this Melchizedek, king of Salem. Now, Verses 1 to 3 here tell us that Melchizedek was designed to resemble Jesus. So if you're thinking of a heading for verses 1 to 3, first major section of my sermon, 
designed to resemble Jesus, verses 1 to 3. Now, most of what's there in verses 1 to 3 is just drawing out the same observations we already made when we were in Genesis 14. I think I might have called Hebrews Genesis. If I did that, pardon me. In verses 1 to 2, you get kind of a plot summary. This Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, and to Abraham apportioned, and to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. It's just summary of the plot, right? Then verse 2, you get the translation of the names. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he's also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. And then in verse 3, you get the observation about the lack of a genealogy. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. Now, as we saw, for the careful reader of Genesis, even though that's exciting, that's pretty vanilla stuff. Those are observations anybody really could have made. Everybody who's reading Genesis knows there's something peculiar about Melchizedek. Everybody knows there's something unique going on in Genesis 14, at least if you read it slowly and ask questions. But then there, at the end of verse 3, we get the key comment. Why is Melchizedek so unique? Listen. But resembling the Son of God. Resembling the Son of God. Or as the King James puts it, I don't know if any of you still have that, it says, made like unto the Son of God. Now the the most literal way to translate these words is quite cumbersome, which is why nobody does it this way, but it would be having been made to resemble the Son of God. If you're a grammar aficionado, the verb is a perfect middle participle. Nobody is, okay. The point isn't to bore you with grammar. The point is to excite you with what it says. Melchizedek was made by God to resemble the Son of God. It's so important that I'm going to repeat the same point, but in different words. That's what pastors do, right? If it's really important, we just repeat ourselves. God shaped Melchizedek and the telling of his story in such a way so as to look like the Son of God. Now at this point I should stop to address a common question that comes up when we're looking at this passage on Melchizedek. And that is this. Was he a heavenly being, maybe even a pre-incarnate Christ that just appeared as a man? Or was he an actual human? You get that? Is he a heavenly being or an actual human? Some some of the things said as I read through this at the outset of the sermon would lead us to believe he was a heavenly being. So verse 3 could be read to suggest that he never was born and he never died. Or verse 8 could be read as suggesting he's in a different category than mortal men. Now I believe it's best to understand him as just an ordinary person. So I want to give three reasons why. First, and significantly, it's what we've already observed, 
And that was, he was made to resemble the Son of God. Now, if God made him to resemble the Son of God, first of all, that means he's not the Son of God, right? You can't be made to resemble something you are. Not only that, but it anticipates him. So we're seeing he's not the Son of God, it just anticipates him. Second, as you're reading along in the book of Hebrews, you remember our sermon from a few weeks back on the first few verses of chapter 5. There we learn that God's priests, according to God, must be human so they can relate to us. That's why Jesus had to take on flesh and become a human. You can't be a priest of the Most High God unless you're a human. So we know he's not Christ, and we know he is a human. That's pretty important. And thirdly, if we are to take these verses to mean that Melchizedek actually never died, then there would actually be competing priesthoods. Melchizedek would be a priest in his order, and Jesus would be a priest in his order. They'd both be continuing priests. But the whole point of Hebrews is that there's only one priest we need. There's not two. So I think it's better to read these verses as suggesting that God deliberately crafted the account of Genesis 14 as a clue. Not only was Melchizedek's life organized by God, but the the words of Genesis 14 are worded in such a way that Melchizedek is presented as a perfect type of Christ. Melchizedek himself and the way his story is told in Genesis 14 are carefully crafted by the Holy Spirit so as to accentuate the way Melchizedek prefigures Christ. So again, you're looking at verses 1 to 3. I think that's the point of verses 1 to 3. The strange clue given by God in Genesis 14 was actually carefully designed by God to point forward to Christ. Melchizedek and his story were deliberately designed to resemble the Son of God. That's verses 1 to 3. Before I move on to verses 1 to 4, I want us to notice something about the wisdom and care of our God. At the very outset of his salvation plan, he's laying out a clue a clue that will point to his ultimate salvation. And do you know what he wants embedded in that clue? King of righteousness. King of peace. And he's pointing forward to Jesus. He knows where this is going. Of all the details you could emphasize about Jesus, what does he want to emphasize? King of righteousness. King of peace. Now when you think of Righteousness, you you think holiness, which is certainly true, but it also means a sense of justice. He's a fair king. He is a just king. A sense of consistently doing what is right in every situation, what is good. He's trustworthy. Some of you in this room right now are longing for just that kind of king. You're Your shoulders are weighed down and you've been let down by all these different voices and figures in your life, even by your own self. You're saying, I need a king who's just, just, and 
good and consistently trustworthy. And way back when Jesus, when God's giving the clues, he says, king of righteousness. Oh, and king of peace. Who in this room right now is feeling the tumult of this world? It is a topsy-turvy world spinning in such weird ways that are out of control. Even your own heart's all messed up and pulled to and fro. There's no peace. And what does God tell you? What clue does he give at the very beginning that he wants to emphasize? King of peace. That is who our Savior is, and God wants you to know that. All the way back in Genesis 14, when he's prefiguring Christ, he wants you to know that, so he causes him to be named Melchizedek, and he causes him to be king of a town named Salem. So that you will know right now in your pew that Jesus is a king of righteousness and a king of peace as you turn to him. Jesus is also a priest, a forever priest, as verse 3 points out. And that's what verses 4 to 10 really pick up on, Melchizedek as priest. So verses 1 to 3 tell us that Melchizedek was designed to resemble Jesus. Verses 4 to 10, and this is your second heading, tell us that Melchizedek was designed greater than the Levites. So designed to resemble Jesus, designed greater than the Levites. Verses 4 to 10 actually make no mention of Jesus. All they're doing is comparing Melchizedek as a priest to the Levitical priests. Now, the Levitical priests were the ones in the Old Testament that God set up to take care of the tabernacle and to handle the sacrificial system he'd set up. And we're going to see later in the book of Hebrews that God designed that whole system, the tabernacle, the sacrificial system, with the way he designed it, he designed it with inherent flaws so as to make obvious that it was merely a sign pointing forward to something greater. And we're going to learn more about that in chapters 9 and 10. But for now, what we need to see is that God made it clear that Melchizedek's priesthood was superior to the Levitical priesthood. Now, that's important because as we saw from verses 1 to 3, Melchizedek's priesthood established the order from which Jesus reigned as priest. So even though Christ isn't mentioned in verses 4 to 10, it's really all about Christ's priesthood and how it's better than the Levitical priesthood. If I told you that I was a cross-stitcher. Watch yourself. And then tried to convince you that cross-stitching is a far superior form of needlework than crochet. I wouldn't need to tell you that I think my needlework is better than what you crocheters produce. I also wouldn't need to tell you that I don't actually know a thing about sewing and that I had to Google needlework just to be able to give that illustration. <laughs> you get the idea, though, right? Even though the paragraph doesn't mention Jesus, even though it's all about Melchizedek, if you say I'm a pre he's a priest in the order of Melchizedek and then talk about how Melchizedek's priesthood is greater than the Levitical priesthood, you know what's going on. 
And so verses 4, four to 10 argue that Melchizedek is great, to use the language of verse 4. See how great this man was? Even greater than the Levitical priest. And he presents four logical arguments to prove the superiority of Melchizedek's priesthood. And this is where it can feel a bit cumbersome to have to maneuver through these, but we're going to do it together. The first argument spans verses 5 to 6. And it centers around the tithe. So you have the Levites who received a tithe from their fellow Jews so that they could continue on in their work as priests. That's how they made their living, from tithes. That's how God commanded it. God commanded that it be set up that way. You paid your tithe to the Levites so they could do their work. But Melchizedek, though not a Jew, received a tithe from Abraham. It wasn't commanded by God, and Melchizedek didn't need it for his livelihood. So if you're comparing the two tithes, the one the Levites received and the one Melchizedek received, the one was commanded, the other was voluntary. The one was from Jews to a fellow Jew, the other was from a Jew to a non-Jew. The one was given by descendants of Abraham, the other was given by Abraham himself. All all three of those details suggest that Melchizedek was greater than the Levites. He was simply such a great man that Abraham felt compelled to tithe to him. That was never the case with the Levitical priests. They received a tithe because they were owed a tithe by their brothers. Let me try and put it this way you pay taxes. Sorry to remind you that time, that about this time of year. Why do you pay taxes? You do so because you're legally required to do so, regardless of what you think of the prime minister. But what if we knew that Queen Elizabeth met a foreign ruler and was so taken with her wisdom and greatness that she gave her a tenth of all she had? I think it'd be safe to conclude that that foreign ruler was greater than our prime minister who only receives his tithes from his fellow countrymen because it's the law. That's the argument of verses 5 and 6. So let me just read them. So now that you hear that, you can hear that argument traced. I'm going to pick up at verse 4. See how this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who receive the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham. You see that? So that's the first argument, an argument about the tithes comparing the Levitical ties with Melchizedek's ties. There's a second argument, and it's laid out in the rest of verse 6 and into verse 7. And it's an argument that we actually already considered, remember, when we were in Genesis 14 at the beginning of this sermon. That's blessings flow downhill and ties flow uphill. 
So Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, and if greater than Abraham, then also greater than Abraham's descendants, the Levites. So we've already kind of covered that, so I'm just going to read it here. Um, Melchizedek blessed him who had the promises. I'm picking up in the middle of verse 6. Blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. So the second argument is arguing from blessings that blessings flow downhill, right? Then the third argument comes in verse 8. Let me just read that verse. One might even say that Levi himself, sorry, I'm reading verse 9, verse 8, in the one case, tithes are received by mortal man, but in the other case, by one who has testified that he lives. Now, at first glance, this, might, this verse might seem to suggest that Melchizedek never died. But one detail alerts us to the fact that that isn't the point, and it's the phrase, an unusual little phrase, it is testified. Did you catch that? By one whom it is testified that he lives. It's pointing back to the written account of Melchizedek. And as we noticed when we read from Genesis 14, Melchizedek is unique in Genesis because we only hear of his life. We don't hear about his genealogy, his birth, or his death. All it testifies to is that he lives. And in that way, his priesthood kind of lingers over the whole of Scripture until it reaches its fulfillment in Jesus. We see that in Psalm 110. The sense created by never mentioning his death, the sense created by the text is that it is a living and perpetual priesthood. Not so with Levitical priests. When you read about the Levitical priests, you hear about their deaths repeatedly and how to handle their deaths. So their priesthood has the feel or sense of mortality. So just from the way Scripture presents them, just the way, from the way it's testified, the Levitical priesthood was a mortal priesthood, but the Melchizedek priesthood was a perpetual priesthood even though we assume Melchizedek died just like all other men. Remember that Melchizedek, in both his life and the way his story is told, is made to lay a clue for us pointing to Jesus. The way he's testified to, the way he's written about as a living priest was very intentional. It was designed to contrast with the Levitical priests. And remember that this, ultimately, this section ultimately isn't about Melchizedek. Remember my cross-stitching? This is about Jesus. The Melchizedek priesthood, as designed and testified to by God, is superior to the Levit Levitical priesthood because it is a living priesthood instead of a dying priesthood. That's the argument of verse 8. And then the fourth argument, showing the superiority of Melchizedek, Come in verses, comes in verses 9 and 10. I'm going to read them, but I'm going to say this at the outset. You might have noticed they sound just a little bit weird. One might say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, it's not as weird as it sounds. I think the argument is going something like this, just phrased in a way that the language they would have used back then. 
since Abraham is the great-grandfather of Levi, the money Abraham gave to Melchizedek, in a certain sense, was Levi's money that Abraham was giving to Melchizedek. So through Abraham, because he was his offspring, through Abraham, Levi tithed to Melchizedek. And if Levi tithed to Melchizedek, if it was his money that was being given to Melchizedek, then Melchizedek must be greater than Levi. That's verses 9 and 10. So those are the four arguments. They're intended to help us to see that God designed Melchizedek to be greater than the Levites. And that ultimately is designed to point us to the superiority of Christ's priesthood. As I close the sermon this morning, I want to address the rigor of this passage and the complexity of its logic. Maybe in a certain sense, this sermon hasn't been as juicy as some. It's been more head and less heart. You might say it's been a bit short on pathos. Pathos. No wonder the author of this book, of Hebrews, before venturing into this topic, paused and warned the listeners not to be sluggish of hearing. You could see how you could become sluggish of hearing in this passage. But this passage, with all its logic and rigor, is important. And I want to say it's important because of what we're about to do. As you take communion this morning, God wants you to know that communion isn't a fairy story. Jesus' death for me and for you isn't something that was invented by some clever religious leaders that eventually grew into a legend and a worldview that has followers all around. God wants us to know it's true. Not just feel it. Not just sense it. But to know it. So listen to how he did it. When he wrote the story of his redemption plan, he planted a figure thousands of years before Christ would come that was highly unusual and unique. Moses, when he wrote that, inspired by God, hadn't seen Jesus yet. No scholar in the world thinks that Genesis was written after Jesus came. Thousands of years before Christ would come, he embeds into that man clues that would only make sense in light of the Christ to whom he pointed. That's what Hebrews 7 is telling us. And he does this because he wants us to know and have confidence that this is real. Jesus really did become a priest for us. He really did offer himself as a sacrifice for us, making ultimate peace between us, sinners, and a holy God. He really did rise from the dead. He really does now. Now, at this moment, Jesus sits interceding before God the Father on our behalf. It's true. He is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Do you want to strengthen your faith in the gospel? You want to become more sure 
that the truths to which communion points are true. And sometimes what we need is a rigorous, complex study like the one we've just partaken of.